Over the past few months, we have been looking at Isaiah 40 up to this point now in chapter 48. And as we'll see, the message has been one of continual comfort and peace and God announcing that he has a plan for his people. Now remember, these people are in exile. These people have been removed from the land. These people have suffered judgment, heartache, hardship. In a new land, in a new territory, they're looking around, seeing the gods of these other rival religions, and they might be saying to themselves, perhaps these gods are the ones that can deliver us because it doesn't seem as though our God is with us anymore. That relationship has been fractured. It brought about this time of questioning, this time of doubt, this time of perhaps skepticism. And throughout these first eight chapters in this section of the book of Isaiah, the poet has been continually reinforcing the fact that God has a plan, that God is here to comfort his people, that God loves them, cherishes them, honors them. But yet we see the response to this people, Israel, is one of perhaps recalcitrance and jadedness and stubbornness. And all this comes to a head in chapter 48 here. One scholar says, since chapter 40, the poet has been involved in a battle to win the community's acceptance of a message about deliverance and blessing. All throughout that text, the poet keeps saying, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. Stay with Yahweh. Follow Yahweh because he's going to do a great thing. He will rescue you. The poet has sounded increasingly hysterical as it seems that this battle will never be won. It's almost as though the poet's getting louder and louder and louder saying, this is going to happen, 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 this is going to happen. But the audience seems to be rejecting it. And here in chapter 48, this is bringing the confrontation and the challenge to its climax here. What's interesting about this set of texts, though, the confrontation in this chapter is against Israel. In the past two chapters, in Isaiah 46 and 47, we've seen the judgment against Babylon, that agent that God used to bring about judgment upon his people. And God says to them, you weren't merciful. You didn't follow me, therefore judgment will come upon you. But now he's turning the tables to to Israel. And the confrontation includes an odd mix of affirmation and rebuke. This, as you know by now, is my dog Porter. Porter is my friend, my companion, my little buddy. At times, though, the language that Kate and I use about Porter is very affirming. It's, it's like we love him. We sing songs to him. Most of the time it goes, Porter Pup, the sweetest, most handsomest dog in the world. You are Porter Pup. He loves it. In an instant, though, it's as though Porter knows that he can push our buttons and he will be up on the couch, which he knows he's not allowed to do. And not only does he get on the couch, some of you side note are thinking like, well, that's not that big of a deal. In our house, it's a big deal. That's the one thing, well, there's many things that he can't do, but that's the one thing that we struggle with. But sometimes lately he's been getting up on the couch and like he just starts like going crazy, clawing at the cushions. And then we have to invoke our wrath upon Porter, sweet Porter pup. He's the sweetest, most handsomest dog in the world. My favorite adjective for Porter is I say, he's so saintly. Just look at him. He's a good-looking pup. But like we have these two sides of the coin where there's all this affirmation, but then there's also this side of rebuke, and it just kind of comes and goes very, very quickly. I'm a teacher. Same sort of idea with 
affirmation followed by rebuke. At times, the students surprise me with how attentive and how on track they are. At times, it's though things are going great. This is a picture, this is like one of the few pictures I have of my students. This is a party that they threw for me for my birthday. I know they just threw this party so they didn't have to do work. I know that, but let's not destroy the the aura that I'm creating here. In this moment, it's like these kids were awesome. We had homemade guacamole, courtesy of Emmy Weyberg. It was a very beautiful thing. But throughout instruction, it's like that affirmation can quickly turn into rebuke. One of the things this class in particular liked to do because we were in the conference room, they thought that they owned the show. So they like put their feet up on the table and like rock their chairs back and forth. And for some reason they thought the cell phone rule no longer applied to them because there was only like five of them. But it's like we can go from you guys are doing really great to this rebuke pretty quickly. In this text, we see sort of a similar idea where the message from Yahweh is one almost of confusion. In some lines, he's like, you guys are, you guys are, are my people. But then it very quickly turns to, but you're not doing this. It's like affirming, rebuking, affirming, rebuking. So much so that some scholars say that one person did not write this text. This text is old and then people have implanted all of the judgment stuff into it later on. I don't think that that's necessarily true because the whole thing hinges on God being affirming but also one who's able to rebuke. And here we've talked about in this text of Isaiah, the message has been comfort, has been love, has been security, has been God has a plan for you. It's been one that's announcing rescue and deliverance. But the way that the people are receiving it is what's causing God to be one who's bringing about a rebuke. The way that they're perceiving it is doubt, potential abandonment, the relationship has been fractured, they're probably insecure about God's relationship with them and if God still actually loves them and cares about them. Uh, In contrast to this idea of a plan, they could see it as potential chaos. Instead of being rescued and going back to Israel, they might just think, well, it's okay here in Babylon, I'll just go ahead and hang out here and start worshiping these other rival gods. It's like they're, they're planting themselves. So it's these ideas of what God is saying to them and how they're perceiving it and what they're doing with it is causing God to get a touch angry. Tonight, I want to look at three different frames of this text, almost like an Instagram collage. I just did get an Instagram account a couple weeks ago, and I'm really having a fun time with it. It's like you can take all these different pictures and put them into one thing and send them out to the world to see, as if the world wants to see pictures of my dog or pictures of a hot dog slicer that my mom got for my little baby who will show up at some point. It's pretty awesome. It's this little hot dog, like wiener dog thing, you put a hot dog in it and it slices it and it's got a little bowl where a dog would be drinking water, but you put ketchup in it. Genius. (laughs) The world needs to see that. But here, like, I kept coming back to this idea because sometimes you have these three different frames and tonight, instead of going, uh, like, verse by verse and trying to really explicate the message of Isaiah 48, I just want to pull out three different themes. I don't think it's going to take that long I think they're very loosely tied together, but they're centering around this idea of of affirmation and rebuke. And remember, this is going to Israel, God's people, okay? So in the first frame, I want to talk a little bit about Israel's words and their deeds. It says, listen to this. This is important because this phrase here in the Hebrew looks back to um, Isaiah 47. I believe it's verse 8 where it says, listen to this Babylon. Same introduction here, but now it's not 
bad Babylon that's getting rebuked. It's Israel. They would have picked up on this thing. So listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah. All this sounds really great so far. You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel. That's all great too. Skip past the bold. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on God. All that's great too. But wedged there in the middle is, but you do all this not in truth or righteousness. You have this pedigree. You are these people that are in the right line, this right lineage, but... The, the oaths that you're taking, the fact that you're invoking God, what you're calling yourselves to be citizens of, it's not in truth and it's not in righteousness. There's a conflict in this text between who Israel is called to be, the descendants, the chosen ones of God. There's also a conflict between who Israel is claiming to be as if they're wearing that saying, we are the chosen ones, we are the ones of God, but who they actually are is demonstrating the fact that there's some tension there between those first two claims. The way that they're living is not adding up to the things that are supposed to be true about them. You can probably see where this is going. Is the same conflict present between who you are called to be, who you claim to be, and who you actually are? It is so easy to be here and fake it. I teach at a Christian school, and the students and the teachers and the staff probably are all experts in faking it. As though our whole lives center around Christ and his truths and redemption and the gospel, that's the image that we project. But yet, when we really examine who we are, it seems as though the things that we say and the things that we potentially believe demonstrate that they're not in truth or righteousness. There's a conflict there in terms between who God has called us to be and who we actually are. I can't help but keep reading these texts over and over and over. And last week we looked at Babylon and the, the main thing that I pulled out was we are just like Babylon. It doesn't get much better because here we are and this is even more pointed to us where we are supposed to be the ones who understand the gospel and have it like be meaningful in our lives but yet the way that we live oftentimes does not demonstrate that. And here I'm not promoting a legalistic understanding of the gospel where the best way to demonstrate that we love Jesus is to not do this, not do that, not do this, not do that. It's the question that keeps resounding, are the thoughts in our mind and the desires of our heart things that line up with the gospel? Do we seek out the lost? Do we seek out the broken? Do we see people in pain and suffering and try to meet their needs? Do we try to become the hands and feet of Christ to identify those sorts of things? Or do we just go on our way because it's easier to do that? It's easy in here to talk about going to Genesis and trying to be like a light to the residents. But sometimes we do that not in truth or righteousness. There's a text in Isaiah chapter 1, and it's not very uplifting, so I would like to read it to you. It says in Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah in this text. He's referring to Israel as Sodom and Gomorrah, which we probably know as Bible readers, that is a foil for who God wants us to be. This association of Israel with Sodom and Gomorrah is not a pleasant one. He continues, Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Now Israel was supposed to be sacrificing, but here God is saying, 
I don't care. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals, your appointed feast. my soul hates. This is very strong language from God. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Here, What Israel is called to do is not what they are in fact doing, so much so that the things that they are trying to do that seem on the outside as though this is what God wants, he says, stop it, stop it, stop it. You don't understand what you're doing. And Here we see some hints of that in the text where the things that Israel is doing, they're not in truth, they're not in righteousness, and it's as if God is saying, stop it. When I hear that, I often wonder, what is it that God is saying to me? Stop it. To be honest, sometimes I wonder if it's this. Stop. Stop doing it. At times it feels as though I'm so far from him. And I think that that call keeps coming back to, to help us reassess who we are and who we're trying to be and who we are in Christ. Continues, I foretold the former things long ago. I knew how stubborn you were. I told you these things long ago so that you could not say my images brought them about, my wooden image and metal God ordained them. Here it's, yes, it's the motivations of Israel that are so much in the wrong place. And here we see how that plays out in the sense that they want to give credit to someone who's not doing things. We've seen throughout uh, Isaiah 40 through 46-ish that this whole polemic against images is something that's very continual. We all have these images. We all have things that replace God, and the question comes back to us again, who do we mistake God for in our lives? What Israel did in this sense was almost accrediting to their idols the things that God was doing. Are there things in our lives that we give credit to when it's really God doing them? I have conversations with my students all the time where they say to me, I just want to see a sign I just want the windows of my room to open up and some wind to come in and like something to appear so that I know that God is doing it. And it's like, sometimes I just want to say, are you blind? What about all these things that have happened to get you to this place, but they've accredited that to other things? And I'm no different than them. A lot of times I credit things to something totally different. Chance, the natural laws of the universe. I mean, these things that don't seem to be God-like at times, I'll attribute to something else. We see in this text this call that we're not so dissimilar from Israel because we make substitutes for God all the time. My latest one is my cellular telephone device, which I believe has all the answers to every question ever posed by man. And it has Instagram. So there's that. But like one, one of Kate and I's biggest battles right now is I'll come home, sit on the couch, whip out my phone, and start playing. And she's like, what are you doing? Be in the moment. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's almost like that 
seems simple enough and seems, you know, innocent enough, perhaps, this is me like really going psychoanalytical on myself here, maybe that's masking a deeper issue. Maybe something is prohibiting me from putting the phone away because I don't want to have that conversation or hear that thing or think about important stuff. We replace God with all sorts of stuff and the message comes back that we're not so dissimilar from, from Israel. Okay, so that's one frame of our really messed up Instagram picture where we have this uh, idea here that who we say we are doesn't always line up with who we actually are and who God has called us to be doesn't line up with who we should be. The second frame of this is this idea that God has a plan for Israel and it's different than what you might think or what you might have heard, at least in this text. He goes on, from now on I will tell you of new things and there's some some tension here because we were just talking about old stuff but now God is telling them new things so that you cannot say yes I knew of them you have neither heard nor understood from of old your ears have not been opened well do I know how treacherous you are could you imagine that the language from the God that you're following that says you are treacherous you were a rebel from birth but here he's setting up this this phrase here because all of this stuff so far has been Israel isn't acting in truth and righteousness and now this is happening where they're treacherous and they're rebels. The question becomes, why doesn't God just destroy them? The answer that we receive isn't one of fluffy, flowery, sentimental, make you feel all warm and snuggly. It's, for my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, drop down in verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. I do it for me. So much in this text for love and affection. It's not as though God is saying, I love you, Israel. You're my people. Not in this text anyway. He's saying it. I do this for myself. I'm doing this for my own sake. I'm doing it for my name. I'm doing it because my reputation's on the line here. God doesn't destroy Israel for his own sake one scholar says the problem for Yahweh is that Yahweh has been for so long committed to Israel and for so long perceived by the nations as the God of Israel that Yahweh's glory in the eyes of the nations can be sustained and enhanced only by the rescue of Israel. Israel will be rescued, but not out of love, but out of self-regard for Yahweh jealously and attentively cares about an honorable reputation. This does not mean that God does not love us, but it means that in this text, the impetus for which God is rescuing his people is because he's protecting his street cred. He's protecting his reputation. Go back in time to Exodus 32 when all of the Israelites were boiling down their earrings and creating a, a golden calf. God gets angry with that and says, Moses, better go down and the language is, go get your people because they don't know what they're doing. It's like, they're not my people anymore, Moses. They're your people. It's like how Kate and I talk about Porter at certain times. It's like, that's your dog that is going crazy on the couch. But here in, in this text, Moses says, you can't destroy them. What are the Egyptians going to think? You just brought them out of Egypt. Now if you destroy them, everyone's going to think you're a tyrant. So God doesn't destroy them, not because of love, not because of the fuzzy feelings on the inside, but to protect his own reputation underneath of that there is this plan that God has for his people but here in this text it's, it goes beyond that and I want to tie that into the gospel. Jesus loves us.
but for no good reason. Jesus has called us to himself. But not because there's good stuff in us. Now here, I don't want to go so far where I say, we're all terrible people, let's dump ashes on our head and just sing about how miserable we are as a, as a human race. That's not where I'm going. But when you think about your life, when you think about how it compares to Christ, all that you can see is mercy and grace and he has given us what we do not deserve. He saved us almost for his own sake. I say that because I think that that begins to take some pressure off of us to try to be this or try to be that. Many times in our, in our journey, we struggle. I think that's okay because we're not going to arrive and Jesus isn't waiting for us to, to come here from down there. He walks with us through whatever it is that we're, we're going through. So here we see there's this tie with the gospel where God's saying, I do it for my sake, not just because of love or these feelings, but I do it because I'm protecting myself and ultimately I'm committed to you. I can't do anything but be committed to you. I think there's a gospel tie there, which is pretty cool. Okay, so now in the third frame of our Instagram picture, it says, this is what the Lord says. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands. So here we see this, this contrast where God is saying, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you would have done this. The refrain here or the, the message here is just one where we are called to listen. And here, I know I'm, I'm balancing a lot of different things with this, this talk. That's why I'm putting them in three different frames of, of this crazy Instagram picture. But here in this text, it's saying as though God is lamenting the fact that we don't listen to him. If only you would have listened, you would have had peace like rivers. Your people would have been great. Your descendants would have been so many. If only, if only, if only. There's application here. There's three points, and then we'll call it a day. In the first frame, there's this question that keeps coming back. Is there a conflict between who we are called to be, who we claim that we are, and who we actually are, how we actually live? Is there a conflict there? Is there tension there? Is our life not in truth or not in righteousness? Second point, there is beauty in God's commitment to us. It's for my sake that I do this. For my sake, for my sake, I did this. There's beauty in God's commitment to us, and I think that with that, there comes some responsibility. All throughout the Old Testament, it's like God does these great things, like the Exodus, and he says, because I redeemed you, you must treat people in the same way that I treat you. That great act of God, that thing that he did, becomes the center point for how their lives have changed. God is committed to us. Has it changed who we are? We've received God's mercy and God's grace. Does that impact how we treat people? Here, I understand that there's this, this commitment to us, but I want to go beyond that and see the fact that once we understand that, it puts something on us to become who God wants us to become. And then finally, the third point, is the story of our life characterized by the other phrase, if only? Is our life one that's filled with regret, filled with difficulty, filled with God saying, I had all these plans, these hopes, these dreams for you, if only you would have followed them out. 
again, I don't want to put like this just big cloud of, of guilt and shame and like pressure on us because I want us to focus in on the gospel, the fact that God is committed to us regardless, but I want us to see that because of that commitment that he has to us, it demands something of us. And at least as I read this text, I can't not think or not be concerned that when God characterizes me, just me, my life is one that emanates not truth and not righteousness, and my life emanates something that's if only. The beauty of this, though, is God doesn't see me. God sees Christ through me. I don't want that fact, though, to take us away from the responsibility that we have to live as those who have been called, to live as those who have been radically and completely transformed by the gospel. I don't want to live in the world of not in truth and not in righteousness. I don't want to live in the world of if only. I want to live in the world of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness, reconciliation and redemption as I continually reflect not me, but Christ in me. I hope that when we see God talking to his people Israel, we look forward in the point in time in the story where his son sacrifices himself for all of us. And I hope that that fact transforms who we are each and every day.